Welcome to Season 3 of the Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. More history, more people, more of the stuff that got you here in the first place. Thanks for listening. One, two, three, jump! What's going on? Welcome to the Knowledge on the Couch podcast, episode number 46. Uh, how's it going, guys? It's It's been an interesting uh, start to season three, but I think so far, so good as it comes down to it. Now, as we talked about this, this last uh, three or so shows, we talked about James Cook, and we talked about Hawaii, and we talked about sovereignty therein, and the subject of sovereignty and sort of the philosophical and political type of episode I did last week sort of inspired me to go back to uh, a, a time that I really enjoy talking about, and I think it's a very interesting time in the United States. Um, this episode is going to be about the Missouri Compromise. I think it's a very uh, interesting turn in American history when this comes down. A lot of people only ever heard of the Missouri Compromise when they were in U.S. history class in high school, and they don't really know what it was, but they can figure out that since Missouri is in the name, that it probably has something to do with the state of Missouri, and it does, but it's a whole lot more than that. It's there's a lot running up to the Missouri Compromise that leads it to what it is. There's a lot that happens during the Missouri Compromise that basically tailors the rest of American history up to the Civil War. There are things that happen during this period of time that have direct consequences to things that happen later on down the road that eventually lead us into the American Civil War. And Going way back to the beginning of this podcast, I did an episode uh, about the caning of Charles Sumner in the Senate building. Literally a guy speaking his mind, and another dude comes in with a fucking cane and beats the shit out of this guy. And that happened in Congress, in America. It's, it's, a, it's a weird and interesting part of United States history. And when I was doing that episode, I did mention a couple things like the Missouri Compromise and the Kansas-Nebraska Act and things of that nature. And I was just thinking recently, oh, you know, this is interesting to me. I really enjoyed doing that episode. I I had a lot of fun just kind of going through that. This is this is a lot more in my wheelhouse than some of the other stuff. Now, just, you know, full disclosure, it's not like I'm a subject matter expert on hardly anything that I talk about on the podcast. The episodes I do on this show come from a sense of of curiosity and a sense of wanting to use what I do have in the old noggin here and and extrapolating that in, in a way that people can also maybe sort of come to, hey, this is really interesting too. I'm glad that you told a story. I'm glad that you sort of went on this learning journey with me. I do have a pretty decent foundation for a lot of the stuff that I do talk about, but by no means is every episode like, oh, of course I know a story. I have hundreds of stories in my head, and I'm just going to make podcasts about them. It's, it's, it's more about... What I think is interesting, 
I do some research, I, I get together a podcast type of outline, and then I just go for it. And, you know, that's kind of how it's been the whole time. But there are subjects that I talk about that I know a little bit better than the other ones, just from my base knowledge and from what I was interested in studying both in high school and in college beforehand. And, you know, American history tends to be my my go to. It's my forte. It's the thing that I like to talk about the most. And this is going to be part of of that talking part of that series. So today and, you know, into the next couple of weeks, we're going to dive a little bit into American history and the politics therein. I hope you enjoy this talk about the Missouri Compromise. Guys, episode number 46, nearing 50 whole episodes. Episode number 46, though, will cover the Missouri Compromise. Guys, stick with me. guys so let's talk a little bit about the Missouri Compromise now of course as I always talk about in the development of our stories and I haven't mentioned it uh, a ton lately but context is king we have to understand why exactly the Missouri Compromise even had to become a thing and what the United States was like at that time leading up to this particular compromise now If you recall, at the end of the American Revolution series that I did a couple of months ago, the the Americans had won the war against the British and had gained their uh, their long sought after independence from the British Empire and the crown therein. So now that they had their own government and at this point had developed first the Articles of Confederation, which led nicely into the better formed and more uh, more strictly lawful United States Constitution, uh, you have this new nation with this new set of kind of federalist laws. And it was very weird on a global scale because not many people were doing what the United States was doing and at such a, a, a large scale. So everything that happens at this point going forward is just guinea pig central. Like nobody knows what's supposed to happen. Nobody knows where everything's going to go. Nobody knows what is supposed to be going on. They just kind of are winging it. it. Literally every year they're like, well, it's uh, these are the rules we have. And we'll just, you know, like the president and we have this Congress, which is, you know, uh, the, the House of Representatives as the lower house and the Senate as the upper house. And we also have. The judiciary, which is, you know, they all check and balance each other. And we're just going to kind of go from there. Like, what do we do with all this territory west of us? What do we do with all this territory over here? You know, what is what about slavery? You know, what about this, that, 
and the other thing. What are we going to do about all this stuff? And this is where this is where a lot of the sentiment starts to change with people. Now, when George Washington left office after the end of his second term, which, by the way, became sort of a standard, um, not until after Franklin Delano Roosevelt was president for four terms, technically three and a little bit of four, and he died during his fourth term. But up to that point, nobody served any more terms than that, based mostly on a precedent, and that's it, set by George Washington going two terms and done. Most people were more than happy if they served out two terms to to bow out and and be done with it. Or the fact that things are so volatile anyway, it was kind of tough for people to have two terms anyhow. Um, but yeah, that's besides the point. At the end of his presidency, George Washington said, hey, don't get into this, you know, bickering political uh, party centric nonsense. We see how this works in England. This is how their parliament works. Let's try our best not to be like that because you made me a president, not a king. So let's not do what the empire does. Let's make our own thing and let's not fall into the trap of partisanship because it's going to be a bad thing. And of course, nobody listens to George Washington, even though they kind of say, Oh, you, we love you so much. You are very well thought of. Eh, we're still going to do political parties because that guy over there, fuck him. I hate him. And then the people on the other side are like, yeah, we also at the same time fucking hate you as well. So you get this giant divide. Typically, the divide is drawn between Alexander Hamilton's Federalist Party, which had been a thing beforehand and, and up through the elections of George Washington and John Adams up to Thomas Jefferson up to that point, the Federalist Party had been sort of the majority party, the party that won the most seats, the party that had the presidency, so on and so forth. But Thomas Jefferson, or TJ as I like to call him, made up the Democratic-Republican Party. Uh, usually, when we speak of it in historical terms, we call it the Jeffersonian Republicans because his party is neither like the modern Democratic Party nor the modern Republican Party that you might think of these days. So just to get that out of the way, Whatever political affiliation you may be, it is not going to be the same as Jeffersonian Republicans. Just to get that out of the way, because words words deserve to have certain meaning behind them, and we shouldn't mince words if we can. Anyhow, you have these two political parties. You have the Federalists, which are very much for this uh, 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 big central government, you know, banking, deficit spending, this, you know, this this whole thing where they're like, this is a, a federal republic. America is the entity and the states while having the rights that they have and the power that they have. Comes second to the larger entity of the United. That's where the United part comes, the United States of America. The other people, the Jeffersonian Republicans, think oppositely. They 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 love the idea of this agrarian society. Now, an agrarian society is very much, you know, on the table at this point because th there's not a ton of urbanization yet really anywhere in the world. I mean, there are urban centers in the world, London's, Paris's in in places like that. But in the United States, while you did have some bigger major cities like Philadelphia and Boston and New York among others, they made up the minority of where the population of the new United States had settled. For the most part, at this point, and for a long time, even up to the 20th century, the United States was a lot more rural 
than it was urban or metropolitan. So the idea that the Jeffersonian Republicans had was more of this agrarian, farm-centric, decentralized society where the states made up their mind about what they wanted to do. The states were the more, you know, the more, the, the higher authority, I should say, than the United States government. The, the United States government at this point, in, in at least in Jefferson's mind and the Jeffersonian Republicans' mind, was more powerful than it might have been during the Articles of Confederation time where the states, you know, during the Confederation period were more like countries in an alliance like the EU today would be a good kind of example of that. The EU obviously doesn't run things um, in in their nation states that, that are, you know, part of their committee. They don't run their government. They let those nations run their own governments, but they also have this over bearing thing where there's money and this whatever it is that kind of helps mold them all together very similarly that's how the united states was sort of viewed during the articles of confederation period the jeffersonian republicans pretty much think similarly about that maybe a slightly more powerful central government than that but nowhere near the power that the central government was going to give that the Federalists wanted to do. And this is kind of a back and forth. The Federalists are in power for the the better part of the end of the 1700s into the election of 1800. You know, everything switches. Uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson becomes the third president. And all of a sudden, his type of Republicanism, his political party, becomes, you know, more powerful and eventually becomes the majority party over the Federalists. The Federalists tend to decline, especially after the war of 1812 um the war goes on there's a thing called the hartford convention that happens where the federalists come together to air their grievances so to speak and then boom kicks down the door andrew jackson's like look we won this war we kicked ass the battle of uh of new orleans everything's awesome we're still kicking the british ass you know because the the federalists at this point did not want to continue to go to war and do all this stuff that they had been doing and then they just kind of lose their footing after the United States somehow wins another war, or at the very least doesn't get their ass kicked in a war like would maybe happen, you know, say 200 years in the future from there. But anyhow, getting completely and utterly off topic, what's going on now is the Federalists are 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 losing hold and pretty much at this time basically not a political party anymore, very much a with the power of maybe like, what you would say the Libertarian Party is these days. I mean, losing tons of support. But since the United States has always kind of been a two-party system, at this point, you still have people who are Federalists and Federalists in nature that are still doing their thing, still making stuff happen as they would do. But, of course, the Jeffersonian Republicans, these Democratic Republican Party people, have become the majority in the in the era and this era becomes known as the era of good feelings. The reason it's known as the era of good feelings is because there is basically just a single party and most people are part of that party that are doing all the stuff, making everything happen, and everybody's happy. Yeah, the United States is working out really good. Look, we just won this war. Everything's going dope. Uh, fifth president's up. James Monroe, everything's going super great. We're kind of losing that national political identity. You know, we're not bickering and bitching at each other like we always have been. So, yeah, everything's going really, really well. I'm really happy with this. And everybody was just kind of like that. You know, they sort of 
it's one of those things that the United States becomes really good at from this era into the Civil War, although it becomes lesser and lesser and lesser of a background thing as we go forward into the Civil War era. But the United States becomes really good, and when I say the United States, I mean the rich white people that run the country, you know, notwithstanding the others who don't have a voice. But the United States becomes extremely good at just ignoring the problems that they all knew were going to happen. They all understood that, oh boy, you know, the United States is doing well. We have all this territory to expand into, and everything's feeling really great. Uh, but we got the slavery here, and it's you know it doesn't look great to the rest of the world. And even though it's powering our southern economy really well, because all we got to do is you know feed and house these people, we don't have to pay them or give them any rights at all. They're basically just property to us. Oh boy, this is not going well. And that's that's the feeling because there's always been these feelings even before the United States was a thing, even during the colonial era, that slavery was wrong to some people and just fine and dandy to other people. And it had been a very contentious issue. And if it wasn't for the just insane overt racism of just the day in general, slavery might have been abolished a lot earlier. But despite all this, there were plenty of people who still either owned slaves or even if they didn't, they didn't really care that other people did. It was kind of one of those things where the people who wanted to own them definitely did. And the people who didn't own them, for the most part, didn't really care that the other people owned them. They just weren't into it. There was obviously militant, you know, very uh, aggressive portions of each side. Obviously, the very top, you know, over here on the north side, the abolitionists going, you must not have slaves. It's terrible. Blah, blah, blah. We're going to fucking kill you. And obviously, on the other side of the spectrum, those who are very vehemently into slavery going, We want to enslave more. We want to take more people from Africa and other places and make them slaves and just drive this goddamn economy. This is what we're going to do. You have those people at both sides, very, you know, extremist on each portion. Then you have a lot of southern people who own slaves but didn't own a ton of them and it wasn't a thing. Plenty of southern people didn't own slaves, but that doesn't mean that they didn't approve of the practice, which is, you know, the, the, the entire thing. As well, as well as plenty of northern people who were in the same boat, didn't own any slaves, didn't want to own any slaves, and just didn't give a shit that people did own people as property. So anyhow, all of this is is me building the context for you to understand why we get to the point where we have to start compromising. The United States is an ever-growing entity. I think a lot of the people at this point in time did not understand how fast the United States would grow, how how much pioneer spirit was in the people of, you know, this growing nation. There were people who said back when, you know, the colonies were the states and, you know, as it kind of expanded into the Ohio Valley and expanded, you know, across the south into, you know, modern day Louisiana and Texas, where they're thinking, oh, hey, um, it's going to take us at least you know, another 200 years even to get across the entire country. I mean, this is slow going. We're never going to get there. And then Bob's your uncle. 40 years later, there are people in California, you know, all the way on the other side of the country doing what they're doing. There are Mormons settling in Utah. There are people everywhere in between. You know, my home state of Nebraska during this point in time, a few years down the road from the Missouri Compromise, becomes a place where a lot of people start to live. So 
a lot of people get this wrong, obviously, in their heads, thinking it's going to be a slow-moving thing. And that's what that's the whole point of the situation that I was sort of trying to make before. The United States and the, and the people therein become really good at sort of pushing this idea to the background. Oh, it'll be fine. Somebody else will deal with that problem. Right now, we're having good feelings. The The party that is is the most, you know, uh, in power is, is very much in power. We're just going to do whatever. These people are going to have their slaves. You know, these people are not going to have slaves. And it'll be okay because we'll eventually just sort of come to an agreement at some point. Something will happen. But definitely not right now. So, hey, let's, you know, pop the champagne. We're having a good time. This is a is is the thing that you even see in modern day where people just want to push back what is very obviously an issue because everything's going great now. So, and if, if something does go wrong, who gives a shit? I'll be old or, or dead or who cares? It'll be down the line. Somebody else's problem. Somebody somebody else will take care of that situation or may a you know, maybe it won't even be a problem. Maybe it's just going to kind of go away as sometimes problems do. Most of the time they don't. Sometimes it happens. So you get to this point where people aren't really thinking very far ahead. Everybody's got their opinion on how the country should be, but people aren't really putting that super forward. Obviously, a few people are thinking of that because we do get to this point. But for the most part, everybody's kind of leaning back and saying, okay, this is great, whatever. At this point, we're now getting up to the end of the 18-teens up to the 1820s. And now as people are moving west and, you know, going here and wanting to become states and, you know, the idea of adding states to the union and making this country bigger starts to become a bigger issue, all of a sudden there becomes a stirring in the Congress where people are talking about, oh, shit, what are we what are we going to do about this? Because the big thing about the balance of power in the United States government at this time, you have the judiciary, which is basically a check and balance against the House and check and balance against the president. They are, for the most part, not really dipping their toes and making any sort of real crazy laws or making interpretations of the Constitution, which is their job. And and making it so that either a slavery is super fine or a slavery is super not fine. Of course, they do end up doing that a little bit later on down the line with things like the Dred Scott case. But we aren't going to talk about that during this particular episode. Maybe we will a little bit down the line because it is an interesting story of its own as we get into the Civil War era. But beyond that, you know, the judiciary is just kind of hanging out and doing their thing. And the president, like we're talking about the era of good feelings the presidents have pretty much been these Democratic Republicans all the way up to the point from Thomas Jefferson, you know, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson and forward the next two or three presidents after that. So they're just they're just feeling good. They're feeling great. Everything's going well. And the the Congress, you know, the House of Representatives and the Senate is where most of the battles are taking place. Obviously, this is where the laws of the country are drafted and made. And the laws of the country can be drafted and made based on the feelings of the people who are part of Congress and obviously their constituents that make up you know, their, their electorate. And this is where the feelings between slavery and non-slavery start to really butt heads. Now, the North, 
those states that would either have already had slavery abolished or very much anti-slavery to begin with or just not much slavery at all anymore make up a much larger population portion of the country than do the more rural and agrarian southern states. Now, this is also where the three-fifths compromise comes in, and we won't cover it too much, but just so that you know, there was a lot of talk at the very beginning of both the Articles of Confederation and the drafting of the U.S. Constitution talking about, hey, the South has all these black people who are slaves They don't get a vote in anything because they're slaves. They're basically property, according to these people. But they are still people. This is the this is the biggest amount of cognitive dissonance I can I can think of when it comes to all this bullshit. Southern states want their slaves to count as, you know, a single, you know, full single people so they, they can literally count all of their slaves as part of the full population of their states therefore granting them more representatives in the House of Representatives. And the North doesn't want them to count for anything. So literally it is two sides battling it out, saying, hey, the South going, hey, our people are worth a whole count of a person just like me. Now, maybe they're slaves and I don't consider them people and I consider this, this, this fully you know, living person just a piece of property. But, hey, I want them to count for 100% so that they can represent me. And here's people in the North going, you're terrible for having slaves. These are actual people, but I, they don't get to count for anything. They, they get to count for zero, which just seems so weirdly, you know, mixed in the message. Like, we, we want them to be people, you know, as considered people, as considered free men and women. But, you know, while they're slaves, they're still property, just like you said, so they count for zero. Because obviously the northern states don't want the southern states to use that to their advantage to have you know, more uh, representatives in the House of Representatives. Obviously the the House is based very much on your your population these days. It's it's typically kind of around about five hundred thousand or so people represents about you know one seat in the House. Uh, Wyoming, for example, these days has one uh, representative in the House of Representatives and two senators. Every state has two senators. Um, Nebraska has three in the House of Representatives. I believe California, with its large population, has 54, I want to say, representatives in the House. So it, it, it's, it's, it's wild based on how many people you have. So obviously, all of a sudden, I'm just thinking of this has become the civics podcast. So I hope you're enjoying that so far. But anyhow, uh, the, the South has less people than the North. They want to count their slaves as more, so they get more people in the House. The North says, we don't want that. They want to count as zero. Eventually, the 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 number lands on three-fifths. So if you had five slaves, you would count three of them in population. There you go. You, my friend, are worth three-fifths of a real person. How does that feel? I'm sure it feels great. This is America. Literally, this is America. So the southern states are able to actually gain a disproportionate amount of representation for their states, their their people that they count uh, is much higher than the people who actually can vote. Although, by the way, you know we didn't we haven't had women's suffrage yet either. So there are plenty of women that are counted in the votes as well, whether they be slave or free, that don't get to vote either. That's an another complete tangent that we can go off of. But anyhow, 
That's what the South wants to do. We get to the three-fifths compromise. The South gets a disproportionate amount of, of representatives in the House, which can help drive these things, you know, kind of around where it is. Because even if the South doesn't have half or more of the representatives in the House of Representatives, there are still plenty of people on the other side, you know, the northern state side, who are willing to go across the aisle and work with the southern, you know, representatives and make coalitions to move laws in a certain direction. So you still really don't need a full-blown majority in the House to make stuff happen the way that you want to make stuff happen, and that's kind of what happens here. In addition, as I stated before, the Senate grants, you know, two seats to every single state that exists. This is the really, this is even more important than the the House of Representatives because when a new state is admitted, bar none, it doesn't matter how many representatives they get, they get two senators point blank in the period. That is it. So when a new state wants to come into the union, all of a sudden, everybody's going, oh shit, this is going to upset the apple cart. This is going to upset the balance of power between states because all of a sudden if we admit a free state, they get two more free state senators plus however many representatives they get and now all of a sudden we have more senators on one side than the other side and somebody's going to bowl somebody over. The northern states didn't want the southern states to have more senators because they didn't want slavery to become more you know, more of a of a normal and, and generalized thing. They didn't want it to become easier to come upon with especially new states and the the giant western portion of the, you know, Louisiana territory that had been purchased. They don't want that to become just, you know, slave yeehaw land. At the same time, the southern states didn't want the northern states to gain the advantage because they didn't want them to pull over what was basically propping up their entire economy in the South, which was the use of slavery and, you know, different things that that their economy, ba- you know, was based on tobacco and cotton planting, planting, excuse me, being the, the top two things that you know, these slaves were were used for. Although there are plenty of other things that southern uh, slave owners used their slaves for. But that was the biggest part. Their economy was very agrarian, very farm based. And a lot of the farm labor was in the form of slave labor. And they didn't want that northern Yankee feelings to come down and bash their economy because of some ideological difference in, you know, the owning of of people as property. So we now come to what is the Missouri Compromise. At this point, as people are moving into the Western territories, there are enough people in this kind of Missouri area that want to petition themselves for statehood. And the government's like, oh, shit, Uh, if Missouri becomes a state, then there will be, at this point, there are 11 states in the north and 11 states in the south, making 22 total states. And if we do my math correctly, 44 separate senators, 22 apiece from each side. Now you have 22 states. Missouri now is, is, is petitioning for entrance into the United States. This is a Missouri territory at this point, a territory of the United States, but it's petitioning for statehood, which would give it all the rights, like I said, the senators, the representatives, and everything uh, about that. And this would this would become a problem because Missouri was petitioning to become part of the Union as a slave state. 
they were going to have slaves in Missouri. The people who were in charge of the government of the territory of Missouri wanted to make it so that you know, Missouri would have slaves just like these other southern states that you think of as the Deep South these days. And they they were going to send two senators who would very likely be slave state senators, and they would send however many representatives who would also be, you know, slave state type representatives that would eventually, you know, upset the balance of power in Congress. Now, of course, you know, and going back a little ways, this balance of power wasn't really a huge issue until this time, because, of course, like we were talking about before, people were just happy to put this slave stuff in the background. They didn't care. At, there was there were points, obviously, as we move you know through the history of the United States, that there were more free states than there were slave states and more free senators and free Republican or free, excuse me, uh, representatives um, than there were of their slavery counterparts. But at this point, people are like, oh, shit, we, we this is when people start to see the writing on the wall and. It's the biggest sort of, I guess, anti argument in my mind of slavery when the southern states knew that slavery was not something that they could continue going, you know, forever. They knew that this would eventually end at some point. They didn't know where, they didn't know when, and they didn't know exactly how, but they knew that slavery eventually was going to be obsolete, you know, at some point. And they didn't want to lose that power. They didn't want to lose it on someone else's terms. They wanted to do it if it was going to happen on their own terms. So as we get into the Missouri Compromise time in the eighteen late 18-teens into 1820 when it happens, that's when we start getting the, okay, if you have a state, then we have a state. And if you have a state, and then we have a state. And we go back and forth forever and ever. This is why... When Missouri was eventually admitted as a state in 1820, Maine was also admitted as a free state to counteract the slave state of Missouri because now you would have 12 states on each side. Maine was, at this point, not a state, which is weird when you, when you think of like the Northeast United States. You know, Maine's kind of right there. You think, oh, that's been a state since the, the beginning of the United States, but it hadn't been. It had been at that point kind of a weird sort of uh, part of Massachusetts. Like you know, Massachusetts is the way it looks now, kind of that, you know, sort of square with a little tail at the end of it. And Maine was then this weird, like, other part of it, you know, next to Vermont and uh, New Hampshire. And all of a sudden they're like, well, we're just going to take this territory and lop it off of Massachusetts and make it into its own state called Maine. And, you know, we are going to make it a free state to balance out the you know, a slave state that is Missouri. So this becomes then, as the title of the episode is, the Missouri Compromise. The compromise is if Missouri gets to come in, then Maine gets to come in. And every time now that there is a new admission to the Union, then, you know, one state has to be a slave, another state has to pop in and become a free state. That is the balance of power that the Missouri Compromise was going to grant this issue. The second part of the Missouri Compromise that it issues is also the fact that in addition to Missouri coming in as a slave state, there is this provision saying, okay, that's all fine and dandy. Anything below 36 degrees and 30 seconds uh, north, which is the southern boundary of Missouri, anything north of that has to be free. Anything south of that can be slave states. 
which if you look at a map of the United States, and especially in its modern terms, that is a really low-lying line. There are a lot more states in the modern union that lie above that line, including Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Minnesota, all the western states, you know, and it kind of lops off parts of California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Nevada. But that's it. I mean, there's a lot more territory north of that part than there is south of that part, which incidentally, if you want another couple of fun facts about the state of Texas, the reason why Oklahoma has a panhandle and why Texas sort of ends where it does in a weird part, you know, instead of just having the rest of that territory and making Oklahoma more of a rectangular shape is because the northernmost border of Texas, that little part that juts up northbound is, you know, 3630. That's exactly where that lands. And it's, you know, the reason why in Texas's constitution now, before we talk about anything else, this is another fun aside. Texas can, if it wants to, it never will, but it can, if it wants to, break up into five, up to five separate states. The reason this was put in that constitution was during the times, you know, leading up to the Civil War, if the North was going to continue to add, you know, tons of free states and then this bountiful amount of territory north of 3630, well, then Texas would just be forced to break up into many separate states that would continue to, you know, keep the balance of power normal between free and slave states because if you're a separate state, like I said, you get two more senators and you get however many representatives that you're going to get. So that was the whole point of that. Um, Texas also seems to think that it can secede from the United States whenever it wants to. That is false because of different reasons and we're not even up to the civil war portion but anyhow that's that's the fun facts about about Texas anyhow we have now the Missouri compromise it says if you get a state which is slave holding then the the free states you know get one as well and vice versa either way it's going to happen the problem with this compromise really starts to show its teeth towards the end of, you know, the 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 end of this period of, of the good feelings moving up into the 1840s, 1850s, and into the Civil War times. Because at that point, you start to get into a new argument of who gets to decide then if a state is a free state or if it's a slave state. Should it be the United States when a state, say, is petitioning to become part of the Union, is it the United States then saying to that territory, hey, by the way, we flipped a coin, and you are now a slave state, while now we have to make another state and it'll be a free state. Now, of course, there is the 3630 line, so, you know, anybody who wants to make a state below that line, you know, would obviously be a a uh, slave state, where everybody above that would be a, a, a free state, but that line itself becomes this humongous problem going forward because then people are saying, oh, well, what's it going to stop, you know, all these people down here from just making a billion states? And what about these people up here making a billion more? Like, we're just going to continue doing this dumb shit forever. And by the way, what if there are people still above that line, a vast majority of the people above that line? What if those people want to make a slave state and they by far have more people, you know, supporting that than otherwise, or what if there are people south of this line that want to make a free state that don't want slavery, but because they're below 3630, they have to make a slave state because that's just the way it is. This problem becomes very notable uh, in Kansas and in California, both because part of California cuts below that line and Kansas is above that line, 
But what's next to Kansas to the very immediate east? It is the state of Missouri. And Missouri at this point is a slave state. And so there are plenty of people who might think, hey, if a lot of those people kind of migrate their way west, they might want to make states above 3630 a slave state as well. This is where the problem comes, and we are going to talk about this. This leads directly into our our next episode. We are going to talk about in in the next, you know, in episode 47 of the podcast, now that we've basically covered what the Missouri Compromise is and what it did, you know, to bump heads in the United States government, we are going to talk about bleeding Kansas in episode number 47 because of a little idea called Popular Sovereignty, part of the Kansas-Nebraska Act enacted by Stephen Douglas, who had run against um, Abraham Lincoln in the presidential races and things of that matter. When that happened, the the 3630 thing was completely repealed. Everything was just moved away. And this idea of popular sovereignty or the people who live here who are petitioning for statehood should get to decide whether or not these people are going to be part of a slave state or part of a free state. And since bleeding Kansas happens in the 1850s, we are very, very much closer to the beginning of the Civil War. And you can you can pretty much assume that shit's just about to hit the fan. But we won't talk too much about that now because I want to save it for the next episode. Guys, that is it. That is all there is to say, really. I mean, that's not all there is to say. There's a lot more I could have got into, including lots of different names and different amendments here and there. But I really think that that is just kind of, you know, that's for more if you want to really get into the the nuts and bullets and like who put their their name into this thing and did this and that and, and the other thing. Really what it comes down to is that Congress says slave states below this line Free states above this line. Missouri, you're a slave state. You're above the line, but that's the last time we're going to do it. And Maine, you get to be a state now because we have to keep the balance of power. This is the way it's going to be. This is the compromise that we have to do. Unfortunately for them, they don't really realize that this compromise is going to lead um, pretty much directly into you know action in Kansas and pretty much lead from that point directly into the American Civil War. And guys, that's that's all there is to it. I hope you enjoyed my civics lesson today, a very basic civics lesson, but hopefully you got kind of an understanding of what the United States was like in the 18-teens and the 1820s, what the attitudes were, what the government was doing, and, and how things were, were moving and shaking as we moved into a different era of the history of these United States of America. Guys, you can find this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found including itunes including google podcasts including stitcher overcast this whatever you can find it anywhere that you have a podcast app open it up search knowledge from the couch podcast you will see a lovely drawing from carissa bettendorf that has a microphone and it has me and it has uh teddy roosevelt it has nelly bly we're all sitting on a couch just having a hell of a time that's where you know that you found the podcast that you were looking for and you found the voice that you were hoping to hear. You can find me on Twitter at Kyle Seinhauser. You can find me um, in uh, the show form on Twitter at The Couch Pod. You can find us on Facebook. Search Knowledge from the Couch Podcast. And if everything goes wrong, just search Knowledge from the Couch Podcast in Google and you will somehow find 
what you're going to find. Go to patreon.com slash Kyle has a podcast and please become one of my patrons and donate a little bit of money to the show. I'll give you something cool in return when you do that. Other than that, guys, I don't have much else to say. Next week's episode, we are going to talk about bleeding Kansas and the interesting story that belongs to that. And since we've created so much context in this episode, we can just run straight into it next week. Guys, thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast every single week. I really do appreciate it. I love you all, and I do hope that you all tend to live long, and because of your long life, you prosper. 